This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch, and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producers are Patrick Antonetti. Sean Cherry. This episode uh, has four guests, and it's probably the most important one I've done, certainly in a long time. My guests are Lisa Wilson of The Athletic, ESPN's Michael Leaves, Raina Cash of the Savannah Morning News, and Sportsnet's Donovan Bennett. These are four sports journalists of color. Um, You have, uh, if you consume those publications or listen to those publications or see those publications you have read their work or been influenced by their work lisa wilson who works with me is the nfl editor at the athletic and a former sports editor for the buffalo news where she was the only black female sports editor of a metropolitan major daily at that time michael leaves of course is an espn sports center anchor and has worked in the business for a long time including in uh, los angeles as well as uh, kentucky Raina Cash is about to be the executive editor at the Savannah Morning News. She was just recently the sports editor at the Louisville Courier Journal. So again, Raina Cash, a uh, a pioneer in this uh, in this business. And Donovan Bennett is my colleague at uh, Sportsnet, host, podcaster, writer, who um, has done some phenomenal work there. Podcast uh, is about how all of these. Journalists are processing what has happened this week in the United States. It's about um, their upbringing, both personally as well as professionally in the business. Issues of race and institutional racism and hiring practices. Their uh, thoughts on athletes speaking out and athletes not speaking out. And where we're heading on all this. I tried my best just really to listen more than anything else. And I appreciate their time and them coming on. I uh, certainly sort of learned a lot of things and uh, sort of reinforces, I think, some of my own naivete about stuff that's been happening for a while. So the podcast starts with Lisa Wilson, followed by Michael Eaves, followed by Raina Cash, followed by Donovan Bennett, all coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. Okay, as I said at the top, Lisa Wilson is uh, one of my terrific colleagues at The Athletic. She's our um, NFL editor there. Might technically be the senior NFL editor. She can correct me if I have the wrong title there. She's had a pretty remarkable career in the sports media, including working as a senior editor for sports at The Undefeated, and then as the executive sports editor at The Buffalo News, and we will get into that. Uh, She was the nation's only black female sports editor at a major metropolitan daily. Think about that. The nation's only black female sports editor at a major metropolitan daily. And I'm pleased to be joined by one of my favorite colleagues at The Athletic, Lisa Wilson. Lisa, thanks for coming on the Sports Media Podcast. Thanks for having me, Richard. All right, Lisa, we, we've been starting um, 
all our guests on this podcast with this very macro question, and that is, um, and you can go as long as you want. How are you processing what you are seeing right now in the United States? You know, as I'm watching what's going on, uh, in some ways it feels like a turning point, and, you know, we'll see how it goes because when we saw the George Floyd video, you know, obviously I had a lot of the same emotions that a lot of people have. You know, I was angry. I was sad. I was concerned about how I was going to talk to my 12-year-old daughter about this. But the one thing that I thought as I'm watching this is, what about the, if he just didn't resist crowd, you know, we've had so many of these police killings and people are trying to find an excuse. Well, you know, just cooperate with the police and you'll be fine. Or, you know, the police have a right to protect themselves. If they thought he had a gun, you know, what are they supposed to do? But seeing this so clearly that he was not only handcuffed and on the ground and had a knee in his neck and people are filming this and begging them to get off him and the cops just looking like, I don't give a, can I say, I don't give a fuck, but I mean, that's just what it was like. Yeah. And you saw that and you're like, okay, what are people going to say about this? Are people going to finally maybe start to get it? What black people have been saying for so long about inequities in policing. And I think that we are seeing that, you know, because this is not just, you know, isolated protests in Minnesota. This is all over the country. So in some ways you're seeing, wow, is this a turning point? You know, athletes are speaking up and, you know, a lot of the athletes that already have, but we're starting to see some athletes we really haven't heard from. We're seeing more white athletes speaking up. But what I'm hoping is that this continues and keeps going. So when I say I think I'm witnessing a turning point, we're going to see because, you know, are we going to keep the same energy moving forward? That's what I want to see. Are we going to keep the same energy moving forward? Because right now, you know, sports really aren't being played. Everybody can focus on this. But as everyone is kind of returning to their normal routines, you know, returning to work, returning to sports, are we just going to forget about this? You know, because this is what Colin Kaepernick tried to tell everyone, and people just didn't want to listen. You know, they wanted to just talk about his protest and what he was doing, how he's disrespecting the military, disrespecting the flag, but not really focus on what he was trying to say. And some of that is going on a little bit right now. You know, I kind of fear, you know, are people going to focus more on looting than they are for the reasons that these protests started in the first place? But I just hope that this energy and this people are saying, okay, we're with you. We're listening. We understand. Hope people are going to continue to do that once our lives kind of get back to normal here. All right, Lisa, as I mentioned um, sort of in your intro, not sort of, in your intro, that at the Buffalo News, you were the nation's only black female sports editor at a major metropolitan daily. Um, You know, that puts you in a pretty interesting position, I think, to sort of evaluate the, the sports media at large on issues of race and institutional racism. And you, you literally were a subset of one, you know, the only person, uh, a lot of times, you know, I sort of when I, I've had many, Jamel Hill's been on this podcast many times. And I remember that at one point she was the, uh, when she was a columnist in Orlando, I believe she was the only black female columnist in a major metropolitan daily in the United States. So how would you, how would you, um, how would you sort of evaluate where the sports media is right now in, in 2020 on these issues? Because ultimately sports media is the one who in many situations will, um, or it's sort of charged with telling the stories of 
of athletes, uh, you know, beyond what they do on the field. Issues of racism, issues of social justice, issues of inequity. Obviously, we have a ways to go there, right? You know, our newsrooms aren't as diverse as they should be. You know, um, I think the last Lapchick report, maybe 90% of the sports editors, white males. But what has to happen there is, and I hope this is part of what's going on with these conversations we're having now, you know, where people are coming out, you're seeing unions coming out and saying, you know, we need to diversify our newsroom. That's I coming out saying we don't have a black reporter, that kind of thing. I think people are having these conversations, and I think that's very important because the people who need to do something about this, the people who hire, they have to make it a priority. They have to make it an issue. You know, as, as a black woman running a paper, you know, we went to look for people on the staff, you know, I, I bring candidates to them, right? Okay, maybe we should look at this person. And some of those were diverse candidates, because if you see your staff isn't as diverse as it should be, you're missing out on stories, you're missing out on valuable perspective and context, you know, and I'm, I'm of a firm belief, you know, a white columnist can write about any subject. I think if you're a good columnist, you can write about anything, you know, and you can do it well, but you can't bring that extra perspective, that extra bit of experience that comes with that. And you can just tell that story, I think, a little better because you have the benefit of having lived it, what it means. You, you're constantly talking to people every day about these things and not just when the latest news cycle kind of warrants that you're talking about these things. At the end of this month, you know, I'm going to rise to the presidency of the Associated Press Sports Editors Group. You know, and obviously I ran on a platform of diversity, trying to make sure that we can, you know, bring more diversity, not only to our newsrooms, but to our group, because it's something that's important to me. Because, you know, when I think about that, you know, when I became sports editor of the Buffalo News, I didn't, you know, I knew that there was a diversity problem in the media, obviously. I really didn't realize how it was all over the country in the uh, editor's ranks. So when I, when Margaret Sullivan promoted me to that position in 2011, so many people were wanting to interview me. And my late husband, Alan Wilson, was, I, I, you know, I remember people wanting to interview me. I was getting all these interview requests, and you were one of them, Richard. And I, so I was like, I said, why does everyone want to talk to me about this? And Alan says, you have no idea what a big deal this is. And at the time, you know, I kind of got it, but I really didn't get it until I got into the role, talked to people you know, you know, became more active in APSC, kind of saw how things were and just, you know, why is it this way? You know, I'm, I'm certainly not the only black woman capable of running a sports department. There's so many of us. So, you know, I try to do my part on this just by, you know, talking to young journalists, you know, trying and people might want to go into media, you know, because it's, it's just, you know, it's not an easy time for our industry right now. And, you know, if people ask you if you want to go in this field, you just have to tell them just how important their voice is, how we need their voice, you know, for that balance and perspective that I was talking about. But not only just writing, I kind of talk to people about, have you ever thought about becoming an editor? And when I go to talk to college kids, it's very interesting. My first question when I go in there, you know, people will tell them all about, you know, these jobs I've held. But I always kind of ask them, how many of you in here want to be editors? And you know how many kids raise their hands? It's always zero. And, and so I try to just kind of talk to them a little bit about editing because, and being a newsroom leader because it's not a glamour position, right? When you go into this, you know, you want to be on podcasts. You want to be on TV. You want to be a writer. You know, you want to 
that's the kind of the job that you seek because that's more of a glamour job. But I try to talk to them about how important it is to have black journalists and journalists of color in these leadership positions, because not only are you going to be making the decisions for hiring people in your departments, but you're shaping the coverage, you're shaping the stories, you know, you're assigning what's important. And I think it's just so important to have us in these roles. So it's a problem that's been around for a while. It's nothing that's going to change overnight. And I, you know, I don't know how much progress I'm even going to see during my presidency, but it's not something I'm ever going to stop fighting and trying to change. You know, I see this. This isn't just a one-year thing I'm doing. You know, I've been in APSC since 2011. I'm staying in APSC. And it's always going to be something that's important to me and that I'm going to try to change, you know, one by one, whatever I can do. Lisa, um, I want to I wanna, um, sort of ask you a, a question um, off this that's sort of always been um, – Maybe puzzling is not the right word to me. You know, one of the things that we see in a sports context is, you know, the the rate of NFL owners hiring coaches of color is awful. And you know, the, the there's a lot of really smarter people than me who sort of try to sort of figure out what it is. Is it institutional racism? Is it is it something else? And and I heard Jim Trotter a couple of times say, you know. One big issue is that the the owners are never around the coaches of color, and what they ultimately end up doing is picking someone who is, um, who looks like them or is within their circles and is closer to them. So something that I've sort of always wondered is, and I don't know if it's as simple as the fact that because it's it's people in management positions who are white, usually white males, and they hire people who look like them or who remind them of them. But why in 2020 has the sports media business not at a point where there are more uh, people of color and particularly women of color in management positions? Like I, I, anybody who's just being honest with themselves knows it's a problem. But the real sort of important question, I think, is why is it a problem? And then if you figure that out, you could sort of change the – you, you could change the numbers here. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's a lot of what you said, just the people who are making these positions. Just sometimes, look, sometimes people feel are more comfortable. They think they're more comfortable around their own, right? They are more comfortable around their own. So that's kind of who you're looking for when you're looking to promote. And if, if your newsrooms don't have a lot of journalists of color in there at the writing level, you know, they're not rising to editor, you know. So when you go to, like, promote someone and get someone more into the management ranks, you're picking sometimes from the pool that's there. You know, who do I want to promote? And if they're just if your newsroom isn't diverse to begin with, then you're not really going to get anyone up into the management ranks. But I think part of this problem, too, is, you know, some of the things that I try to do is talk to journalists about trying to go on that track of wanting to be a manager. And let's face it, like a lot of times it's going to be because you don't see people who look like you in these roles. Therefore, you might not think it's something that you can aspire to or something that's going to happen for you. And it's very important, someone in my position, that's why I feel such a responsibility to try to, it would be nice if when people were hiring in newsrooms that they gave an honest effort, you know, that they wanted to make sure that their staff reflected the community, that your newsroom was diverse. But a lot of times it doesn't happen. You know, you're going to pick from the people who apply for that job and you're not going to, you know, you're going to say, okay, well, sometimes I think there's the excuse that, you know, well, maybe 
we didn't get many candidates of color who applied for this job. But I think part of the responsibility is on the people hiring because you need to know who's out there and not just when it comes time to hire. You know, one of the things I did, you know, um, Kimberly Martin, you know, I know she wouldn't mind me telling this story, you know, fabulous NFL reporter now at ESPN. But when she was at Newsday, she was someone I kind of recognized as an up and coming star in this business. So I wanted my bosses to take a look at her. And we didn't even have an opening at this time. But I told, so, you know, I just known her from Twitter. We really didn't know each other. But when the Jets came to cover the bills, you know, I messaged her and I said, hey, would you like to get together for coffee? And she's like, sure. So I met her for coffee, had never met her before, talked to her within five minutes. Usually I get a read on people in this business right when I meet them. So I talked to her for five minutes. I said, she's great. She's somebody my bosses should meet because obviously, you know, we needed to diversify our staff but we didn't have an opening. So I told my bosses, you know, I have someone I'd like you to meet. You know, I think that she would be a good addition to our newsroom. And so they brought her in and talked to her before we even had an opening, you know, and then a couple things, you know, there's a couple times where, you know, we had talked to her for jobs, you know, and things didn't work out. And finally, you know, I was gone at this time when I went to the undefeated, she ended up joining the Buffalo news as a columnist. And then she was like, maybe the nation's only black columnist at the time. I believe she was black female columnist came to the news. Now it didn't last long. It was two months. She was at the news, but you know, I felt great about that because that's what I was trying to do. Right. I'm trying to bring a candidate to you. And I'm in a lot of ways, I shouldn't have to do that. You know, people who are hiring should know who journalists are, who might be talented and identify them on their own, even when there's not an opening, because you know, like, like right now, obviously, our business is struggling, you know, the coronavirus, everything that's happened, you know, there's furloughs, there's layoffs. So right now, you know, a lot of places might not even have openings, but that still doesn't mean you should ever stop thinking as long as you have a newsroom and you have reporters that you should have a diverse staff and that you should be thinking about this even when you don't have an opening, identifying them. So that's one of the things I try to do. And I tell that story. Um, about what happened with Kimberly, if I'm ever speaking about diversity, you know, and what this problem is and how maybe some ways we can fix it. You know, this is something you should always think about, not just when you have an opening. You know, if your staff isn't, isn't reflecting your community, then you've got some work to do there and that you should always be doing that work. So I think, yeah, that's to get back to your original question. I think that that's it. I think people making these decisions just are kind of they aren't going outside of their comfort zone. You know, they're just doing whatever is easy to fill these positions. Or maybe people they know, people who've come. A lot of this is recommendations, right? You call another editor who's, who's good for this job, you know? So and a lot of times if it's a white editor calling another white editor. It might just be a pool, a pool of candidates of white people because that's kind of who they work with, who they're comfortable with, and who they recommend. But now I'm starting to see a shift a little bit, you know, like you'll have editors maybe call me or call Larry Graham or call someone else in this business. Larry Graham is, um, he's the chairman of our uh, uh, diversity committee in APSC. People will talk to him. Um, at APSC, we just started something called, not too long ago, called the Diversity Pledge. And what that is, is if newsrooms who have a job opening post that job opening on our site, it used to be a charge for that. Now you get a free job ad if you pledge to at least talk to one diverse candidate in your search. And quite a few editors before this shutdown happened were taking that pledge. So it's slowly, slowly, hopefully, things are going to start to change a little bit.
I appreciate that answer and the, and the Kim Martin story. Um, and uh, I've, I've known her for a long time uh, and, and really uh, have great respect for her. All right, let's um, we'll finish up on this topic, Lisa, because it, 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 it's specific to sports and specific to the content that me and you deal with on a daily basis. And that's the reaction that we're seeing from professional athletes, college athletes, uh, over the events in the U.S. Um, and globally now at this point in terms of protests uh, over the last week. You know, I think in these situations, Lisa, you you expect someone like LeBron James or uh, Dwayne Wade, uh, Stephen Jackson's been active. You expect athletes of color who have made it clear that um, th- they have an interest in speaking out on injustice and on social issues, like you expected them to weigh in, and, and many of them did thoughtfully. What was a little, what has been a little different about this week, and I, I just want to get your sort of interpretation as to how you see it, is I have seen white athletes who have never stepped into this arena putting out statements. Uh, you know, Carson Wentz sort of seems like uh, Exhibit A in hockey, like you know, Braden Holtby, Sidney Crosby. You know, uh, there are a lot of people who say that like to sort of really have systemic change like it can't always be athletes of color leading the front like they need their 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 fellow white athletes to if nothing else at a base minimum to speak out we also that leads us eventually to the Drew Brees thing which we can eventually get to if you want but i wonder from your perspective as somebody who's obviously been a you know sports editor at a major daily you're now the NFL editor uh you know and a massive site that that we both work for with, I don't know how many NFL reporters are under you, whatever it is, 50, 90, you know, it's a, it's a big story. Um, the nexus of athletes talking about this, uh, within the protests and George Floyd, how have you viewed it? Because it, you know, I, I, I'm a bit of a cynic, so I, I I never really believe that things are going to change until they change, but it does feel a little bit like an inflection point, Lisa. I'm just seeing things that I've never seen before. How do you see it? Yeah, you know, I agree with you there. Um, we are seeing that. You know, when we were at the height of the protests in the NFL, you know, um, the season after Kaepernick had taken the knee, that's when I was at the Undefeated, you know, and we were writing a lot on this subject. And that's what so many black athletes were saying. You know, we need our white counterparts to speak up. And, you know, you had a few, you had Chris Long, but you didn't have very many, you know, you made a rapino, you know, you had some white athletes who were speaking up about this kind of thing. Now, suddenly you're seeing it. And, you know, I think part of it is just, part of it is seeing this video of George Floyd being killed by police. And I think it's unfortunate, but I think it took something like that for people to say, okay, maybe what there's there's some truth to what you've been saying all along, right? So, and th- this is not just athletes. I think this is society at whole. You're starting to see so many people talk about this and have these conversations because they saw this, and maybe they're starting to get some idea of what Black people have been saying all along about these subjects and speaking out. Um, you know, in some ways, what I'm seeing now is. It's encouraging because, you know, we talked about Carson Wentz, but I think what's really encouraging to me maybe is seeing Joe Burrow speak up, right? This is the next generation of athletes coming along and speaking up and just saying the black community needs our support. You know, they've been ignored for far too long. Just seeing that, it kind of gives you hope. This is the new generation. Trevor Lawrence spoke up, you know, seeing these younger kids talk about this 
you know, and at least start to have these conversations is encouraging. But as I said earlier, I just hope we keep the same energy because remember when Trump called the athletes who were protesting sons of bitches, you know, you had that weekend in the NFL where everyone locked arms, kneeled. It was this big show. But eventually that went away, right? Last year, you didn't see much of anything. You know, you saw your normal, you know, saw um, Kenny Stills, Eric Reed, the guys who've been in it and stayed in it. But you didn't really see anyone else doing that, you know? So it's kind of like that was the moment everyone was talking about it. I think in these moments, sometimes you feel pressure to say something. You know, you don't want to be silent. You feel pressure to do it. But where are you going to go from here? You know, I think they're talking about it. It's very important. No change. Nothing ever happens without a conversation, right? Everything starts with a conversation, I believe. So people are starting to have these conversations. And that's encouraging. And it's encouraging to see more people talk about this. Some of these statements, you know, haven't been as strong as they could be, obviously, not addressing the real problem. But at least they're saying something. But I just hope that it really continues and people are starting to look not only at society, but at themselves to really, you know, affect some change and keep this going forward, you know, and however they can do it, you know, whether that's policy change, whether that's just in their daily interactions, you know, are you calling out your racist friends when they're saying things, you know, how much, how often does that happen? And you just really didn't say anything. Is that really going to start to change? Are you going to maybe think now, you know, about privilege and all these things that you don't want to think about, you know, are you going to have these conversations and are you, you know, a lot of people are feeling uncomfortable now, but is that going to continue? And that is the main thing I'm wondering. So it is encouraging, obviously, to see it's much better than people being silent, I think, that they're talking. But I just really hope that it goes somewhere. But yeah, to your question, what you were saying, yeah, I have noticed the difference. And I just really, really hope that it continues. Like NHL players, this is never really discussed, right? So let's hope that this leads to some conversations that eventually lead to some type of change. I have two more questions for you, Lisa. Um, you, um, in your position, um, and it's inter- you have an interesting perspective on this because you worked at ESPN, which really uh, had to navigate this. And, and this is me editorializing. I, I think at times navigated it poorly. But there will always be uh, people in an audience, and I'm sure this is true for the athletic, who do not want to see stories about how athletes feel about these issues or about the— <laughs> You think? Right, yeah, or about, you know, or uh, the, re- yeah. the reaction from some prominent um, people of color in athletics to what Drew Brees initially said. Drew Brees, since he apologized, by the time you listen to this, that story probably will be somewhere— uh, will will have taken probably a couple steps forward, um, but Lisa, how do you navigate that? You 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 worked at the Buffalo News, so you're sort of making the t- the top decision there. When you were at the undefeated, you're at ESPN, which clearly has um, for a long time basically said that they uh, they don't want their people to sort of issue any kind of personal statements on this, and they want to traffic very lightly. I feel on this stuff. And now you're at the athletic again, in charge of all our NFL content where this is going to be a major story. It's the, it's a Drew Brees, the biggest, one of the biggest stories in the country right now, uh, going beyond anything else. So how do you, I guess, institutionally look at covering this stuff, knowing just, this is the real reality of this, knowing that there are going to be people in your audience who are going to tell you in the comment section, they don't want this. They are going to tell us that, but 
you know, we're going to continue to cover it. It's what you just said, Drew Brees, one of the biggest stories in the country. So how can we not cover that? You know, and they're going to say what they're going to say in the comments. Um, when I first came to the athletic and if we wrote anything on race, it was the comments, I'd say 90% of them, you know, I, I'm not, and I have to go back. It's not a scientific figure I'm giving you or anything, but so the vast majority of the comments were negative. And you got this, the overwhelming comment just to sum it up was, this isn't why I subscribe to the athletic. I don't want to read about this. You know, don't turn into ESPN, that kind of thing. You know, don't try to be woke like ESPN, all these comments. I don't want to read about that. And just as we're seeing in these streets with people protesting and there's kind of been a change and people kind of realizing, okay, this is a problem. Maybe I'm starting to see it now. It's very interesting that our comments section, there still are those comments like that. I don't want to read about this. And the more we post, I'm seeing a little bit more of, okay, I'm a little tired of reading this. And, you know, I'm just thinking if you're tired of reading this, imagine how tired people are of living it. Right. But I have, I do have to say, I'm noticing a bit of a change in those comments. And I think that's encouraging. Um, We published a piece earlier this week where several of the black journalists who work at the athletic just wrote about their experiences of being black in America And that's the kind of thing, you know, we obviously have not run much on our site, right? But really, I I was so pleased to see so many of the people in there saying, thank you for sharing your stories, or thank you, I didn't realize this is something that you went through every day. And that was just so encouraging to see. That's why that piece was written. You know, know, we talk about it amongst ourselves, right? Let's take it out there and kind of just show people, not only our coworkers, but let's show, you know, our readers, people in America, what it's like. And that piece was just much better received than I thought it was going to be. So that's somewhat encouraging. When you're writing about this, you're going to do it no matter what people say in the comments. You're not going to stop because it's a big story. It's an important story. And it's something we should be talking about. And people want to say stick to sports. But, I mean, one of sports and race, when has that not been an issue? You know, it's, it's always been an issue. I work for a site, The Undefeated, that is devoted to that, the intersection of race and sports and culture. It's, it's all connected. And it's something that you're going to have to cover. And I'm just glad that people are trying to maybe just, just open their hearts, open their eyes, maybe listen to see what's going on. The comments on there are much more positive than anything I'd seen. And it was a pleasant surprise. Lisa, is there anything um, that you want to add that I did not ask you? You know, o- you know, only that I just, I just hope that we keep this going. That's the main thing I want to see. You know, like, don't just let this be about this moment and then everything is going to go away. Let's really just kind of keep the conversations going. It's so important, you know, newsroom diversity that we're talking about. I want to just I hope that we just keep these conversations going and I'm adding something that I've been saying all along. But obviously, it's just something that, you know, I really hope to see. And I just hope people stay focused on what this is all about. You know, there's been so many people are starting to comment on the looting and the riots and, you know, something always distracts you. Right. When Kaepernick was protesting, people just wanted to make it about the flag about the military. They didn't want to get the message of what he was trying to say, you know, and this was four years ago, you know, so now are people starting to get it and are they going to stay kind of just focused on what we're talking about here 
and not about everything else. I, I'm, you know, the more I see people talking about the looting, the rioting, the more I thought this is just like 2016, where people are just missing the message. And it's unfortunate. You know, I wish that that concern they have about rioting and buildings, that you have it for black lives. Lisa Wilson is a senior NFL editor for The Athletic. And again, I sort of touched on her remarkable career as the uh, senior sports editor uh, for sports at the, at the Undefeated and the executive sports editor at the Buffalo News. Um, I'm very proud to uh, be uh, on a masthead with her name on it. Lisa, um, I've known you for a long time, and, uh, and I wish you nothing but uh, continued success. Thank you so much today for uh, giving me some time on the Sports Media Podcast. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me on. I really appreciate it. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right, as I said at the top, um, Michael Eaves is an ESPN anchor. He joined ESPN in May of 2015. Uh, following more than two decades of uh, journalism experience in television and radio. He worked uh, hosting Clippers Live and Angels Live at Fox Sports West and Prime Ticket in Los Angeles. That's why he's pretty valuable on the Kobe Bryant coverage from a couple months ago. Served as a sideline reporter for the Lakers and Dodgers, also seven years with WKYT in Lexington, Kentucky. I also know he's a University of Kentucky Graduate, um, has done some excellent work on ESPN, and I'm uh, pleased to be joined by Michael Eaves on the Sports Media Podcast. Mike, good to talk to you. Thank you for coming on today. Yeah, no problem. I'm glad to do it. Go Cats, by the way. So this is a question that I'm asking all our um, all our guests today on the podcast. It's very mi- macro, and you can go as long as you wish or wherever you want with that. And that is, um, how are you processing what you are seeing in the United States this week? <laughs> you know, it's it's interesting that you ask that question. My wife and I literally have been trying to determine that answer uh, within our own household the last several days. Um, it has been difficult. There's no question um, that it has been very emotionally draining to absorb everything that's going on. I mean, for a number of reasons. One, because this is not the first time we've seen it, quite honestly. And, you know, for... People in the black community is like, here we go again. And do you find any hope whatsoever that it could change this time? Because it didn't change before. It didn't change with Trayvon Martin. It didn't change with Tamir Rice. It didn't change with Walter Scott. It didn't change with so many of the people before them and after them. And so that's been the difficult um, part for us personally. But, you know, the issue is, Richard, like, for me, being on television and, you know, having to deal with something like this on a very personal level, even though um, I had no personal connection um, to George Floyd in this situation, but I know what George Floyd in my life, excuse me, in terms of who he represents. Like, we all know what George Floyd in our, in our respective communities or family circles. Um, but then you have to turn around and, and do your job, right? And it's the weight of that and then still trying to, 
you know, do your job at the level um, of professionalism that is expected, that's a lot to deal with sometimes, man. And this is yet another example of, you know, black people having to absorb something like this, but then still turn around, go do their jobs, whatever that may be in whatever respective field, but then also turn around and be the representative for an entire race when they have these conversations with people who are not black. And that is tiring as well, because that's an added responsibility when you are black in this country, is that you have to represent an entire race on the regular. The average white person does not have to do that. The black person does it pretty much at least once or twice every single day, at least. And for some people, depending on what they do for a living and where they live, they do it constantly. And you put all that together, it's a lot. Um, you know, in the grand scheme of things, people keep asking me, how are you doing, blah, blah, blah. And my, my general answer has been, in the grand scheme of things, I'm good. But I'm far from great. And I hope that this will be the last time that we have to go through something like this to get someone's attention that things need to change. Mike, uh, you, you brought something up that uh, I want to follow up on because I think it's certainly um, it's well stated, it's poignant, and it's um, reality for this podcast. How do you weigh when someone sort of wants to ask you about your experience? Uh, you grew up in Kentucky. I, I certainly want to know what your experience was like growing up black in Kentucky. Um, at the same time, um, you know, you're, there has to be bit of an exhaustion in that I'm, I, let's, let's face it, I am putting you in this position as you, uh, asking you to explain to my audience to get some insight into your life, your experiences, and how those ultimately led to you becoming an ESPN Sports Center, Sports Center anchor. So how do you weigh that, Mike? How do you weigh with the sort of always being in that position while at the same time, I'm sure, wanting people who are uh, not people of color to sort of understand your experience to hopefully get a better sense of what that has been like. First of all, I grew up in a very small town in southwestern Kentucky, <clears throat> White Plains, Kentucky, a town of about 800 people. And in that town, there were only five houses that had black people in them. Okay. So my entire life, I grew up surrounded by white people, being the only black person in class, oftentimes, and other things I did growing up athletically or even academically, oftentimes I was the only black person representing, you know, for the people, right? So I've, I've dealt with that my entire life. And I've dealt with racism at every aspect of my adolescence, all the way up through adulthood. From the, I remember the very first week of school in the first grade, there was some white kid that cornered me and my two cousins, the only three black kids in the hallway, and they tried to beat us up. These kids were like seventh, eighth grade. We were six years old. And they were trying to beat us in the hallway because we were black going to school there, right? Um, so I've had to deal with that my entire life. But I've also understood because I'm the only person in those environments oftentimes that I do represent the entire race. And I want to show white people that there are so many other black people than what you see portrayed in certain movies and on newscasts. And the problem is the average white person does not have a large enough circle with people of color to where they can understand that what they see that is typically portrayed is actually the exception and not the norm. So I always wanted to portray that I am actually more like the average black person than what you see and what maybe you've been conditioned or taught to fear, right? 
I've always taken that role upon myself. Now, again, that can be exhausting, right? Because the crazy thing that sometimes happens in these environments where you end up talking about race and incidents happen is that a white person will, for lack of a better term, mansplain to me what it is to be black, right? And I'm trying to represent to them and tell them that I am way more towards the norm when it comes to black people than the exception. But then they'll try to tell me something else. So it's frustrating that someone will try to tell me what it is to be black or try to discredit my experiences or my feelings. And that happens a lot. And so you have to deal with all of that uh, throughout your developmental years. And then you get to, you know, higher education for me in college and being involved with a white fraternity, but then having the black fraternity sororities involved with um, activity that had never happened at the University of Kentucky before I got there and helped sort of initiate that. And then you get into the newsroom environment, which we know also is not very well represented in terms of, you know, mirroring the communities that these news organizations serve. And you have to represent yet again. And then while you're there representing, you also have to try to uh, go to your bosses and say, look, we probably need some more diversity here. We need some more people of color in these positions, not just on camera, but behind the camera, making decisions, things of that nature. Like all these responsibilities eventually fall upon you. And, you know, going back to your first question, it's a lot of weight. But I have always welcomed that opportunity because if it's not me, Richard, who is it going to be? That's always been my approach. If it's not me, then who? Um, so as much as some of that stuff has been troublesome and heavy, I do welcome the responsibility because I do feel as if change has been initiated in some smaller circles throughout my life. Now, grand scheme of things, is it getting better? Yes. Is it where it should be? Absolutely not. But if you can't make the small change, you sure the hell can't make the big change. Mike, I'm going to ask you specifics about a couple of specifics, not many, about ESPN. But this question is far more broad because um, you've been in the business now for a while. Um, how would you evaluate the sort of the, the sports media profession sort of writ large when it comes to coverage of issues of the nexus of race and institutional racism, of coverage of social justice. You know, you, you've, you've been in this business a while now. You've, you're old enough to have seen what it was like, you know, a couple a decade or so ago, a couple of decades ago, and you were certainly, you know, you're at ESPN during Colin Kaepernick and everything that sort of that brought. So, how would you evaluate where the business, where the where the business of sports? I shouldn't say the business. How would you evaluate how the sports media writ large covers these kind of things? Um, not well at all. Um, you know, to the to the the average consumer of media will often say that the media is very liberal in its agenda. Now, granted, within that media capacity, you have different people that have different agendas, but they say largely the media is liberal or left leaning. That does not mean, though, that even those who may hold those views who work in the sports media would view black athletes the same as they would view white athletes. And it also doesn't mean that they don't expect certain things in terms of behavior and responses from black athletes compared to white athletes. And one of the first things that I realized when I started working in the media is how much got misunderstood and then misconstrued when it was a white person relaying the story either through a newspaper or a television network or what have you. And I would be at the same 
media interview session or the same interaction in a dugout or what have you, and then a white person I would see write about it or talk about it, I'm like, that's not what that athlete meant at all. So there was, you know, this, this cultural um, disconnect that also leads to a lot of misunderstanding. But the problem is, or the problem has been, is that so many of those media members who are white would not take it upon themselves to try to understand these black athletes better. What they wanted to do, and maybe take the lazy approach, is they wanted those black athletes to acquiesce and be more like the white athletes because it's easier for them to do their job, right? Where I believe the white reporters who cover these teams, especially when it comes to athletics, they need to go out of their way to understand the cultural background of these players, where they grew up, how they see things, how that impacts their responses to certain things, as opposed to criticizing them because their reactions and their experiences are not in line with that white reporter. And that would always frustrate me. You would oftentimes, especially let's take a Latin players, for example, or players from Asian descent that come to America and play baseball, especially the white reporters will always get upset that these guys don't necessarily learn English. How about you take some Spanish classes? You're always you're putting all of the pressure on them to acquiesce to a new culture while still going out there and hitting 300 and driving in 100 runs, but you're not willing to take a Spanish class so you can get to know a certain athlete better, right? So that's just an example of this disconnect that does not trigger in those white reporters the desire to engage and learn more about the people they're talking about. It's easier to sit back, not understand, and then criticize it when often what you are seeing is not factual in terms of the actual response of those athletes. I've seen that from the beginning of my career, and unfortunately I still see it now at times. It's not as bad as it was 20 years ago. I would definitely say that. But oftentimes white reporters take the easy way out when it comes to understanding the athletes, especially the minority athletes that they cover. Mike, what um, what kind of conversations are happening this week? I imagine these are conversations that have been happening, you know, forever uh, between um, co- your colleagues and your friends who are part of the National Association of Black Journalists. Well, that's the thing. Um, so much has, has happened in in terms of our internal discussions over the last couple of years of what we are trying to do to help change the face and leadership of sports media across the country, right? Because I was former president, uh, vice president of the sports task force. I'm still highly involved in some of the you know, executive decisions. And we've had these conversations for a while. Now, this is a probably good opportunity, quite honestly, that we may get more attention in terms of people listening to us. Because, you know, you have people like me or L. Duncan or Jay Harris, Maria Taylor at ESPN, for example, like, you know, if you're the consumer and you see us, like, oh, they have quite a few black people, you know, on the air. But what ESPN needs more and what Time Warner needs more and what NBC needs more and CBS and, and the Athletic and the Bleach Report and any other media company out there right now, they need more black people in positions of leadership that control policy and control budgets. Because when you control those things, you control who is hired and who ultimately develops your content. There's not enough black people in those positions. And as much as I love to talk to reporters or young up-and-coming journalists about what it takes to be an honor talent in the national level or in local television, I always try to afford more of those people to seek producing jobs that lead to management positions. But if those media companies aren't taking the initiative to put people of color in those leadership positions, 
it doesn't matter. And that's the point that NABJ for the last couple of years, especially the sports task force, has been driving home every time we meet with these media companies, including ESPN. Like we had a we had a meeting with Connor Shell at uh, the NABJ convention last year in Miami, and we you know outlined some things to him that we'd like to see from ESPN, and it related way more to um, leadership positions and producers who control content than anybody on air. And that is the biggest push that we need. Um, from a media standpoint, but quite honestly, throughout society, like that's the problem. If you look at the judicial system, if you look at the police union and the police chiefs and mayor's offices and all that kind of stuff, there's just not enough black people in these positions to to exact the real change that needs to happen. Mike, I want to talk about ESPN a little bit uh, and understanding um, you still work there, and 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 you know your answers have to reflect the fact that you know they they are your employer, um, you know, but. I've covered this a while. You've worked there for a while. You're certainly well aware of your place's, what's the word, reticence when it comes to front-facing talent like yourself delving into um, hot-button issues on certainly the air, but also that extends to social media feeds, personal social media feeds. I have talked about this on this podcast now for multiple years People who've listened to this podcast know I've had Jamel Hill on many times and Michael Smith and his conversations we've we've talked about a lot. I, I have been one that has been, and this is me editorializing editorializing now, frustrated at what I think is ESPN not allowing or trusting its people to um, put out what they believe on their Twitter feeds. I understand the argument against it. You pick, take their check, you play by their rules, etc. This has been, that's a preamble, Mike, to say that this has been a week, a horrific week in the United States of America, unlike any that I've seen in a long time. So a couple questions off of this. First and foremost, um, have you felt comfortable this week putting out uh, on your sort of personal space, your personal social media feeds, however you feel about what you are witnessing? Yes, 100%. Oh, that's good news. Um, do you feel that that is any kind of um, change in management, or do you feel like management, because of the situation that is existing, is is not enforcing previous social media rules, or is it something else that maybe I'm not asking you here? Let me say this. I, I would never want to speak for our management because they, I've not gotten any um, directives from them over the last you know week and a half relative to this particular issue, okay? So I can't speak to if that's a change in their um, minds in terms of how we represent ourselves and our feelings right now through social media. Um, I will say that largely, and I even felt this sort of before I, I got to ESPN, quite honestly, that oftentimes that narrative of what is political, that ESPN having this, you know, also liberal agenda, it, I, I believe that was hijacked by people who just didn't want um, people to talk about things they didn't like. Okay. And, and I've always said to those people, show me one time on sports, and at least since I've been here, as, a, as it relates to ESPN being so political, when, when was the last time you saw us talk about abortion rights? When was the last time you saw us talking about the national deficit? When was the last time you saw us talking about education reform? Those are political topics. Racism is a social topic, and it impacts everything from your local community to your favorite sports team. 
And within that context, the athletes that you cheer for have to deal with racism, and it can impact their performance on the field. And that is the context that I believe, way more than not, that racism is discussed when it comes to people who work at ESPN. Um, Now, some of the things that some people have said have been very pointed about certain political figures. That, to me, is different, right? And I refrain from doing that, quite honestly. Um, And that has nothing to do with ESPN. Um, I, I just don't like, and granted, I, I'm minored in political science, so I'm a political nut. If I'm not watching the game, I'm consuming a lot of, of political news. Um, and there are certain aspects of it that I hate from a hypocrisy standpoint, but I don't use my personal uh, social media feed to dive into the particulars of politics in terms of how Democrats play against uh, Republicans and what is a conservative agenda versus a liberal agenda. I personally just don't do that. But I, I will talk about race. I will, because it impacts me directly and the people around me, my family, my coworkers, and people that I love. And I will never accept that talking about racism and its lingering effects is a political issue. And I will tell my bosses that. And I, I think that, you know, since I've been here five years now, that they, they fully understand where I stand on that regard. But, no, I, I personally have not. Okay, that. Um, there was any pressure not to put stuff out there like that. Oh, it's good good to hear about this week. And I, you sort of hit on something that I used to sort of like clap back on people on Twitter when they would say ESPN is so overtly political. I'm like, yeah, like the, the 11 p.m. Sports Center's report on Brexit, I agree with you, was just way out of line yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's a, and, but, you know, you're, you're sort of dealing with on Twitter sometimes just you know, arguments that sort of are circular and never ending. You um, you mentioned race uh, in terms of not being, um, you know, sort of using your social media feeds to discuss this. One of the clear things, Mike, as I'm sort of taping this with you on the first week of June, and it, it, might, it certainly will be added to or could change if, if you can end up listening to this a week from now, are the number of athletes who have stepped into the uh, arena on this. Um Athletes of color, particularly the NBA, have always been very socially aware, and we have heard from the LeBron Jameses and the Chris Pauls and and others for years, basically on on injustice and and uh, inequality and inequity. What what is kind of different about this moment, Mike? And I just want to ask you this: if you think it's lasting, is we've seen some athletes who never never talk, um, sort of um, address this topic, and then for whatever it's worth, we have seen a lot of white athletes in some sports where um, you don't often hear white athletes sort of talk about these issues being very public on their um, social media channels on websites uh, addressing this. It feels like to me that sports is um, because of the celebrity of it, because of the importance of it in the United States is really going to be a, at least in the near term, play a pretty big role on whatever dialogue happens. How have you seen all of these, um, all of these statements and and all of these things come out. And as we're taping this, literally a couple hours ago, LeBron James commented on what Drew Brees had to say. This will probably will be old news whenever you guys hear this, but we are literally, as Mike and I are taping this, in the middle of this. For me, Richard, and I've always told this to people, and I think you know, oftentimes that you know people just don't fully understand all the things that happen around them. And I'm a history nut. I don't. The majority of the social change in this country's history, especially you know from the 1900s on, oftentimes the catalyst was sports. 
whether it's Jesse Owens and Jackie Robinson or Muhammad Ali or even you know LeBron James and Maya Moore now, typically you have people from the sports world that set these examples for white America to see that, oh, okay, if Jackie Robinson is such a stand-up guy, if Arthur Ashe is such a stand-up guy, then, yeah, I can see us making some change here. I mean, it took, you know, black players going down to Alabama from USC and beating Bear Bryant and the Crimson Tide for people there. It's like, oh, yeah, maybe we should have some black players on our team and in our school. So sports has always been at the forefront of that um, in modern U.S. history anyway. I think as it relates to some of these white athletes now coming out and voicing their feelings in support of their you know, black teammates that they haven't been as comfortable in the past doing, I think this all goes back to Colin Kaepernick. Because of what happened with him and how much attention was on him and his stance and what he was trying to represent and all the conversations that these locker rooms were starting to have, I think it opened the eyes to a lot of these white athletes to something that they simply weren't paying attention to before or hadn't realized. Because that topic and Colin Kaepernick was such a hot-button issue and a polarizing figure, you could not you could not escape those conversations. And I think from that, and now you have a perfect example of what he was trying to make America stand up and realize. So shortly after his protest and him you know, being blackballed from the league, I think these players fully understand, oh, this is what he's talking about. And it's still happening despite all the um, anger from other people mad that, that the way he was protesting and then, again, also hijacking that entire thing, thinking about the flag as opposed to what he was really trying to point out. Yeah, he was absolutely right in terms of what is happening and what needs to change. And I think because of that, they are way more comfortable and actually, Richard, also just more knowledgeable. And they can say these things with some um, level of understanding and consciousness to go out there and say something not just in support, but also something that's very heartfelt and needed, quite honestly. Mike, I have two more for you. Um, where do you stand on not only your place, but the sports media at large? Um, I don't even know if it's saying being comfortable, but willing to sort of have uncomfortable conversations or willing to print uncomfortable things, uncomfortable things for certain members of their audience and perhaps certain members of their paying audience. How do you feel a place like yours will be over the next couple of months? Because, you know, I have to be honest with you. One of the things I think that we saw when the Kaepernick discussion came out was that ESPN got very scared at the reaction to that. Uh, we saw the president of the United States, um, you know, mention and his press secretary at the time mentioned ESPN, mentioned an ESPN uh, employee, in fact. And and the, the company, I feel, this is just me editorializing, I feel like the company ran away from that. Um, do you think we will be in a different place now on as we had in the first week of June of 2020, where some of these uncomfortable conversations uh, and stories can ultimately happen? Because that's really the only way we're ever going to get progress. True. Um, first and foremost, I don't think any uh, company, especially a large Fortune 500 company, wants to be involved in any type of controversy that could, that could affect their standing in the market. Okay, Let's just be real. From a capitalism standpoint, no company wants to be involved in anything in that regard. And oftentimes when that happens, um, there could be an overreaction to step away from it. Um, you know, I, I can't speak for everything that happened uh, a couple years ago to the events that you're referring to, but I know this. I think so many people involved in those decisions around those incidents would probably change things 
now if they could go back in time. Okay, but that simply is not the case clearly, and it all matters on what you do going forward. I will say this: even prior to this particular um, tragedy happening in Minneapolis, I've been involved in some internal discussions at ESPN about some things related to diversity inclusion and addressing some of the topics I was talking about earlier in terms of putting uh, more people of color in executive uh, leadership roles. So as a company, um, with a director from Bob Iger, from the very top, all the way down to Jimmy Pataro, Connor Shell, and Norby Williamson, there's been conversations internally at ESPN for us to do our part in improving that aspect. And if you do that, your coverage will be better because it'll be more inclusive, it'll be more well-rounded, and it will be, to me, a better overall product. That's always been my push. The, the more inclusive and diverse you make the content, the more well-received it will be. Now, I don't know how much of this particular incident will sort of catapult some of those initiatives. You know, granted, we've had the pandemic, and that's affected so many things from an operating standpoint that oftentimes things get, you know, delayed because of what's going on uh, in the marketplace. But I do feel confident, based on the conversations that I've been a part of, that ESPN as a company, you know, behind Walt Disney as a parent company, very committed to diversity and inclusion, and I think ultimately, Richard, it will impact how these particular incidents and topics are covered under our umbrella. We will always have to do it under the umbrella of sports, right? We're, we're not talking about things that doesn't tie directly to sports in some capacity, whether it's player involvement or things of that nature. But as it stands right now, I feel pretty confident about where ESPN is going in terms of what it wants to do with diversity and inclusion. I really do. Mike, I want to end with this. Um, is there anything else that you wish to say? Is there anything else that I didn't ask you that, um, that you'd like to use this forum for? I appreciate so many people who have reached out to me and some of my colleagues as we go through all of this. It's comforting to know, Richard, that people do care and they believe that the things that people of color are telling them. And I can't say that I've always felt that way. And that's either from my personal circle, or I should say extended circle, to, you know, people that are just, you know, viewers and audience members who, who may catch me on sports every now and again. Like, this feels different. It really does. And as much as I'm, you know, hesitant to be overly hopeful, at least the current response, you're always going to have some knuckleheads on the other side that just, you know, can't change your mind. Anyway, and ultimately, those people will not matter in the grand scheme of things. It's always important to know that people see you and they hear you and they want to help. And I think for the large part, we're, we're feeling more of that right now than we ever had. And if we don't have that support, none of this stuff's going to change to begin with. Mike Leaves, uh, somebody you can see currently on um, Sports Center, uh, Emmy Award winning sports journalist. I gave his. Uh, resume at the front. If you want to follow him on Twitter, it's at Michael Eaves, his name, M-I-C-H-A-E-L-E-A-V-E-S, somebody I've uh, admired for a long time in the business. Uh, Michael, I really appreciate you you taking some time uh, today to come on the Sports Media Podcast, and uh, stay safe and continued success. I appreciate the time, brother. Before history is written... It's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. 
Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. All right, as I said at the top, um, Raina Cash is um, the sports editor of the Louisville Courier-Journal and working in the city of Louisville right now. We'll certainly talk to her about that. And she is um, heading very soon to be the executive editor at the Savannah Morning News. She's been in uh, sports journalism for quite some time, as our other guests have. And I'm pleased to be joined by Raina Cash. Raina, thank you and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. Thank you so much, Richard. I've been waiting on this opportunity for a long time to, to be on with you, so it's an honor. Aim higher, Raina. Bigger goals next time. But, <laughs> but, but I, it's very nice of you to say. Um, this is something I've asked every person who's on this podcast, and I will ask you the same. It's a very open-ended macro question, but how are you processing what you have seen this week in the United States of America following the, uh, following the death of George Floyd? Um, it's been difficult. Uh, for me, um, everywhere I've lived professionally and in my hometown, there's been some incident, incidents of, uh, police brutality from Trayvon Martin in my hometown of Sanford, Florida, uh, right up to this moment here in Louisville, uh, with Breonna Taylor and, uh, most recently, um, still to be determined whether it was brutality or not, but the, the killing of a, uh, a local restaurant owner here, David McAtee. And uh, it's hard to escape. Um, it's emotionally troubling and painful. And, um, you know, as an African-American, um, walking through life, it, it, it feels feels difficult, um, and even more so during these times. So how I've been processing it, um, I've been trying to stay grounded, uh, trying to stay in, in personal prayer and devotion, and, um, you know, trying to uh, be a voice um, that's needed in this, in this time and in this world to the extent that uh, I'm able to do that. Raina, what was it like for you growing up as an African-American woman in Sanford, Florida? I love my hometown. (laughs) Um, You know, I had a pretty traditional, uh, you know, child rearing growing up. I uh, had both of my parents, and um, my father owns a dental lab, and uh, my mother has been in uh, medical records and coding and uh, things of that nature um, her whole career. Um, I was a, uh, an athlete throughout high school and went to college on an athletic scholarship. Um, but it wasn't until, you know, I was older that you see the, um, the economic disparities between communities that you really begin to notice it. Um, you know, the separation of the haves and the have nots. Uh, but my, my high school was pretty diverse, um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's the one thing about, uh, you know, us as African-Americans, we're a lot of things. 
right? We we aren't, uh, you know, people use the, the word disenfranchised and underserved, and, and those are true, but there are also African Americans who, um, you know, came up in really nice neighborhoods and have wonderful professions and two-parent homes, and, and all of those things are part of our story. And um, I hate that uh, we're, we're often sort of put in this, in this bubble, um, people trying to define who we are by one definition, but we're all of those things. And I'd like to see uh, media and sports media uh, reflect that. What was the, curious, what was the sport that you, uh, you, you played at in college? I ran track at Florida A&M in Tallahassee. Long, 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 long time ago, Richard. <laughs> Pam Oliver, Pam Oliver as well. That's Star right. Of Florida yep, that's A&M. right. What was yep. your, uh, what was, what was your event? Uh, I was a sprinter. 100, 200, 4 by 100. It feels like a lifetime ago, but... <laughs> Still, that's... If you're doing 100 and 200, you probably were doing some serious speed at one point. Uh, I can only admire sprinters who uh, <laughs> who go that fast. Um, and having covered uh, many Olympics and seeing the 100 finals, you know, whether it's Veronica Campbell, Veronica Campbell Brown or Usain Bolt, it's just, it's an amazing thing to watch... Uh, those guys and women at the highest levels. Um, Beautiful so we'll, sport. Beautiful yeah. sport. We'll see if we can get some uh, footage of you from back in the day, Raina. Some of the grainy, <laughs> grainy footage of you please sprinting. Spare, <laughs> spare everyone that, please. <laughs> you, um, you mentioned the sports media, and um, you are the nation's. Uh, you, I should, I'll let our audience know that you're 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 soon to be moving to the Savannah Morning News. Um, to become an executive editor there. But as we speak this, as we tape this now, you're the nation's only African-American female sports editor at a major metropolitan daily. In your opinion, can you tell me what, what that means in 2020, that, that, that you are a subset of one? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's embarrassing uh, to us as an industry. Um, it's hard to wrap your mind around trying to understand why that why that is. Like, how did we get here? Uh, Lisa Wilson, um, another one of your guests, was someone um, as I aspired to become a sports editor, and I looked around the the landscape. At that time, Lisa might have been the the only sports editor at uh, a major newspaper when she was uh, in Buffalo. And so the the circle has always been the group has always been really small, but but now. Knowing that uh, today, today actually is my last day here at the Courier Journal, and I'm leaving a void, an absolute void. Um, it's it's unsettling, and um, you know, from my standpoint, I would love to be. If I would offer this up here, I would love to be uh, someone who's able to to groom and and lead people into these roles. It's hard to find. Um, people interested in moving into this level of leadership. You know, a lot of people want to be on television. They want to write and understand that. But it's from this chair where you get to make decisions a lot of times about what coverage looks like. And um, so I don't know the reason, all of the reasons why, uh, but I know it's, 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 um, it's embarrassing and I want us to do better. We have to do better. Right. How can that pipeline change? Because, you know, we see in sports, you know, NFL owners so often, ultimately, when it comes to the head coach, they, they pick someone in their circles. And usually someone in their circles is a white male um, at a certain age. 
So how can the how can the system, the sports sort of media ecosystem change when it comes to getting more um, African American women in particular um, into management positions, whether that's at a place like the Louisville Courier Journal or at a place like ESPN or Fox Sports or The Athletic or anywhere? I think you have to look beyond sort of this this dotted line trajectory that you go from this job to this job to just to this job, uh, that you have to be a reporter and then an assistant editor, then a deputy sports editor, and then the sports editor, you know, like following this line. Well, maybe there's someone who has been a, a veteran reporter um, for a long time and can, and can go sh- straight to management. Look for skills that people have um, that maybe don't bubble up in the article that they wrote, but they have strong leadership. They have a calm demeanor. They are collaborative. Um, you know, they manage their time well. They're organized. All of these things that don't show up necessarily on a resume, we have to look for those those skills and assets in people. Uh, we have to look beyond what was the job that you had before you interviewed for this job? Uh, how many people have you managed? Well, maybe you don't. Maybe you don't have a team that you've managed, but maybe you've um, been a leader in a volunteer organization. Maybe you've uh, led uh, a, a group or a charge in your newsroom that you work in. Um, you know, leadership shows up in a lot of different ways. Maybe you're, uh, you hold a leadership role or on a board or, you know, within NABJ or within the Association for Women in Sports Media. Um, you know, so you, you got, we have to break out of this tradi- traditional recruitment of talent and look beyond what's right in front of you dig a little deeper ask more questions make connections show up at nabj don't just send your you know the black representative from your newsroom if you're serious about it you go to nabj uh you know editor or managing editor um from your newsroom show up and and be committed to the cause of diversifying um these newsrooms Raina, you uh you know that we've we've seen a lot of um, seen a lot of commentary and a lot of talk that that we're in an inflection point in the United States right now. Um, I think, you know, if you're a cynic or a realist, while you may appreciate that's what it looks like, I think you have to realize there have been so many times in our history where we've said this is an inflection point, and here we are again. That's sort of my preamble to talking about. Um, athletes speaking up right now. From your vantage point, um, how do you see the impact of athletes speaking out? And at least in the short term, it's not just athletes of color who have been speaking out, but we've seen some white athletes who usually don't get into uh, get into this space, at least be public about it. I think everybody reaches a breaking point. Everybody reaches a point where they're like, you know what, that's enough. I've had it. I'm over it. Enough is enough. And uh, my silence, um, my silence is dangerous now. It's it's not just a personal decision, but it's it's a community decision. It's a it's a national decision about our country. Um, 
if you're in, in the NFL, it's a decision about our league and who we are and what we are and what we represent um, when we're not on the field. And um, athletes are feeling that. And um, I applaud those who have stepped forward, um, and I've seen it done in uh, emotional ways. Um, it's been – it's. I think for some of them, um, it's it just the things that have happened have just broken their hearts and their spirits. And they're looking out at a George Floyd and they see someone who looks like them. And uh, the the league has in, in in some in many ways put pressure on them to be quiet. You know, don't kneel. And uh, if you want to do that, do it in the locker room or, you, you know, it has not been supportive. And uh, and so now they're saying, okay, so our message is more important than the corporate message. Our lives mean more to us than just this paycheck that we're receiving. And um, so I think I think they just reached a breaking point. And I applaud those who have stepped forward. Um, I know that it comes with a cost. Uh, it's interesting, the, the NFL players who uh, put together the montage, the video of um, Our Lives Matter, and posted that last night I saw on social media, and I made the mistake of opening the comments, you know, reading reading the comments. There were those who were supportive, of course, but, you know, all of the negative backlash and the things, it's not easy for them to do this because they catch crap. They catch hell for saying the things that they say, for standing up for themselves, for defending their own lives and livelihoods and the, the lives of the people who look like them and walk in their shoes. Um, this idea that because you make millions upon millions of dollars that you are not affected um, is just ridiculous. And um, so... I'm glad they did it. I'm glad for the ones who are doing it. I'm glad for the, the white allies who are standing beside them. I'm glad for the ones who are doing it from the heart, who are, who are genuine about it. Um, and I'm, I'm glad not just for the ones who are speaking up, but for who are trying to find ways to positively affect change. On a micro level, because uh, it's a si- singular specific athlete, what did you make of Drew Brees' comments? followed by the reaction to Drew Brees' comments, followed by Drew Brees um, issuing the, an apology and at least on face a, uh, an acknowledgement that uh, he has to do better in terms of understanding uh, what others have gone through. I don't know that I have anything original, Richard. This is just my, my thought on it. Uh, I don't know that it's unique from um, a lot of the reaction that, that you've already heard. Um, but to me, what struck me with the, the portion of his interview uh, when he said that it sometimes brings him to tears, uh, reflecting on his grandfather's service uh, to our country and what it means to him. And he has his hand on his heart and uh, the Star Spangled Banner is playing and it sometimes brings him to tears. And I thought. When you see someone being killed by police, do you not cry? Um, when you see the racial injustices that are happening um, in the communities of families um, 
of those represented in your locker room, does it not hurt? Does that not bring you to tears? Like, <laughs> it, I was, I was, I was furious. <laughs> to put it quite frankly, I was furious, and I, I don't understand it. Um, and the uh, the reaction to it uh, from Malcolm Jenkins and others, um, he deserved everything that came to him for what he said, for him being so naive, I guess it's naivete, uh, for being so self-centered uh, and selfish um, to not read the room properly uh, for someone who, who reads plays and, and knows the playbook and is a phenomenal quarterback, uh, that he misread this uh, this moment in time. Um, whatever backlash he received, he deserved. His apology, um, he sounded contrite. Um, I hope that he was. I hope that he gets it. That doesn't mean that he doesn't love and respect and appreciate the flag. Um, and it doesn't mean that he shouldn't love the love our country and um, as we all do. Um, but to listen to those whose experiences are nothing like his. Um, and I hope that he is um, willing to do that sincerely. Raina, you, um, you've been working in a city which has been on our national uh, sort of uh, landscape following the death of Brianna Taylor and David McAtee. Um, can you give people who are listening to this just a sense of what it has been like to be a news person in Louisville over the last couple of weeks? The fact that, and not only here in Louisville, but everywhere that this came right on the heels of, of coronavirus uh, coverage, um, not on the heels, but in the midst of coronavirus coverage, um, re- from a journalistic standpoint, reporters were already stretched thin. Um, you know, we have furloughs, um, so that's making it harder. But we have people who are busting their tails uh, trying to cover everything wall to wall. And right in the middle of that, um, Brianna Taylor is shot and killed in her apartment um, after police entered um, on a no knock warrant at 1 a.m. And uh, the thing that I love about my colleagues here at the Courier Journal is, yes, we're tired. Yes, we're stretched thin. Uh, but recognizing the weight of the moment, jumping right in. Everybody wanted, wants to be a part of the coverage, not for selfish reasons, but knowing how important it is that we get it right. Um, in terms of the city, uh, the city is, is, has been hurting and the city is angry and um, they've demanded change. The police chief has been fired. Um, the mayor, I believe, ha- is uh, done away with the no-knock warrants or is considering it. It's on the table. Um, you know, the, hopefully change is afoot. Uh, the protesters have been out since last Thursday, so more than a week. We had uh, a lot of rain here last night, 
It didn't slow them. They were still there. And I think it's going to continue. And then right on top of that, we had David McAtee, who owned a uh, local um, barbecue restaurant, uh, a place that was frequented by police officers. Uh, it's right in the heart of uh, what's called West End, um, a neighborhood in Louisville, primarily black neighborhood in, in Louisville. And the police who uh, worked in that precinct, um, worked in that area, they, they frequent his restaurant. And uh, he was killed outside of his restaurant uh, on Monday night or Sunday night, Monday morning. And so that, that even hurt police officers. I, I did an interview yesterday with a, a black or earlier this week with a black police officer here in Louisville who was, who was born and raised in, what, in the West End and has known uh, David McAtee his whole life. And um, how he talked about how supportive McAtee was of him becoming an officer. Um, and he was in tears um, over this loss. And he's not alone. So uh, it's, it's, it's hard here. It's hard all over the country. Um, I just hope that this isn't just a moment in time, that this is a movement. And uh, we try and solve or bring to, bring to light the, the issues that brought our country where we are right now. Raina, um, you, I'd like to conclude with this. You, um, as you mentioned, you're, you're leaving the Louisville Courier Journal and you're heading to an executive editor position at the Savannah morning news. Um, what do you hope to sort of do heading forward? You're moving into, I, I sort of make, I think the fair assumption that's sort of a, uh, a, a more executive position, kind of a, a, a full newsroom leadership position so you're going to head out of sports for a little bit what um what do, you, what do you hope to do at the savannah morning news what attracted you to that move the exact thing that you just said to have an opportunity to um earlier i mentioned when you're in in leadership as a sports editor you can um influence or shape coverage to a greater degree than if you're a reporter and so I hope to do the same in Savannah. Um, I'll also be the Georgia State Director um, overseeing uh, Augusta, the Augusta Chronicle, and the Athens Banner Herald. Um, but they each have their executive editors, but I'll be the Georgia State Director kind of pulling together coverage that, that ties throughout the state of Georgia. And in Georgia, there are a lot of pockets that just go uncovered, communities that just are completely forgotten about. My hope is to uh, give voice to the voiceless. My hope is, um, you know, to, to do enterprise work and investigations and watchdog uh, journalism that uh, really moves us forward, um, that is fair and, and balanced, and that challenges local government, that holds uh, elected officials accountable, um, and is a, a, a place of utility as well. Um, just be comprehensive and, um, you know, to be, to be, the, to be the newspaper and the, the, the website, savannahnow.com, that people in Savannah need, uh, not just kind of tickling their ears, but the, the thing that the, the place that they need uh, a daily resource 
um, and to challenge people to think and do better and more. Uh, that's my that's my hope there. Raina, is there anything that you want to add that I didn't ask you? Uh, no, I don't think so. Raina Cash is the current sports editor at the Louisville Courier Journal, and as she mentioned on this podcast, will become or you know, immediately the executive editor of the Savannah Morning News. If you're interested in Raina's work, you could follow her on Twitter. Her handle is at Raina underscore cash. So R-A-N-A underscore C-A-S-H. Raina, I can't thank you enough for, uh, for giving me some time and, um, and for your thoughtful words on this podcast. I wish you nothing but continued success and, and stay safe. Thanks so much for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League Podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Donovan Bennett, as I said at the top, is a host, podcaster, and writer for Sportsnet in Canada. He, uh, he's got a big presence on their um, digital platforms as well as on their audio platforms. He is one of the uh, co-hosts of Free Association, which is Sportsnet's NBA podcast. He co-hosts with me, or he really hosts, and then I occasionally come in, the Sports on Pause podcast, which... Um, examines the nexus of sports and uh, COVID-19, a short-run podcast for uh, for Sportsnet. And uh, you can also find him uh, on various platforms uh, across Sportsnet when it comes to you know, many different things from sort of uh, traditional stuff like the NBA as well as uh, how social issues uh, navigate themselves within sports. And I'm happy to be joined by my... Uh, my co-host and uh, my friend from Sportsnet, Donovan Bennett. Donovan, it's very weird to have you on this podcast, given we work together, but but I'm happy to have you on. Thank you for having me on. This is how I know I've made it, right? Like, my mom can now be proud of my work. Not only do I work with you, um, I get to join you on, on your pod, so thank you. Yeah, I mean, it, it goes without saying, please aim higher uh, <laughs> as you head forward in your career. All right, you know we—it's uh, good to have a little levity because this um, this entire podcast is a very serious topic, one in which um, I feel like my goal is really just to listen more than anything else. And so let's start off with a very macro question, Donovan. How um, how are you processing what you're seeing from the images in the United States right now? Yeah, I mean, it's a loaded question, and it's tough because, in a way, as a black man, I'm, I'm not surprised. Um, I'm not shocked. I don't have awe, as many people who have said that they do, because I've been fully aware that this is something that happens routinely, that this is something that happens uh, systemically. So I'm not now more motivated, uh, because I'm seeing you know, the late life of George Floyd play out on my social media. Black people had seen that in their communities uh, 
and in literally, if you want to talk about the history of black people, for hundreds of years. So the only real difference now, I suppose, is technology. And other people are starting to see it, and other people are starting to feel that pain. So uh, in a weird way, I kind of looked around and said, what do you think we've been talking about? What do you think we've been protesting about? What do you think we've been kneeling about? Um, and so I, I hope that this is not just a moment, but a movement, a sustained conversation, one that is had by everyone really honestly, not just putting up black squares on Instagram, not just sending out PR statements, but really doing the work. That's, that's my hope. I, I have seen some terrible scenes of, you know, major cities in the United States burning night after night after night, and it being covered on the local news like it's a sport event. And, and that really makes me sad. But in a weird way, I don't know if we're still having this conversation if the peace felt, if the protests were quiet and nice and people walked with linked arms and said prayers and then went back into their homes. So as difficult as some of those scenes are to watch, in a way I'm glad they've caused us to really have a prolonged conversation for the first time that I can remember in my adult life. Donovan, you um, you grew up in Toronto. What has your experience been being black Canadian? Yeah, and so it is different than the experience, you know, of, of a black American where, you know, in your textbooks, you're reading your history and, and you're understanding slavery and understanding that the structure that you live in was built on the backs of your ancestry. It's different in, in Canada. And there is racism in Canada, but it's a little bit more polite. It's racism with a wink and a smile. It's not as obvious. It's a little bit more covert. But in Canada, in my personal experience, I, I kind of always have felt a bit like an outsider. I'm a you know, first-generation Canadian. My family moved here uh, from the West Indies. And so, in a way, you're, you're not exactly like the people from back home. You, you weren't raised in Jamaica, but you're certainly not like your white counterparts in, in, in your classes or on your teams. And so you have this curious outsider perspective on on race and all these issues. And so it's something that you you feel, you, you know it's there, but it's not in your face. I've, I've described it specifically about my experience in our industry, but it, this is not unique to, to media. Black people face it in, in all industries. It's like you're haunted by this ghost. You know race is a factor because it's a factor in everything, but you can't always put your finger on it. You, you don't necessarily understand, well, was that interaction solely because of my race? Was it 5%, 55%? What is the formula that's going to allow me to know how much every single interaction I have is due to my skin color. And I want to make it clear, every single interaction, because part of the privilege of, of not being a person of color is that when you leave your door every morning, you just don't have to think about it. 
You don't have to have your heartbeat skip a jump when you hear sirens, even though you know you didn't do anything wrong. You don't have to always have your hands at 10 and 2 when you're driving. You don't have to always have your your ticket, whether it's for uh, public transport or for an airline, in visible sight just so people understand that you paid to be where you are. You don't have to always think about exit strategies and how are you going to get out of a crowded place if something goes bad because you know if you're running, you're going to look like a target. And you don't have to really think about making white people comfortable. I don't want to walk too close to this person behind them because I don't want them to think I'm a threat. I want to make sure I get off the elevator first and go to my condo or my dorm so they understand I'm not following them. I want them, I want them to know that I am actually planning on shopping in the store and not stealing from it. You have to make decisions in your life to make everyone around you comfortable, which makes you constantly in a position of uncomfort. And so you don't necessarily know how much and how often it is a factor, where in America it's very clear how much it is a factor. But it is still a factor in Canada nonetheless. You still have racial profiling and carding in communities in Canada. You still have a distrust between law enforcement and minority communities in Canada. You still make less money to do the same amount of work in Canada. And there's still a long, painful history of race relations in Canada that remains to this day. So I almost feel like being haunted by it in a way, is is difficult in its own right because you can never really put your finger on it, and that takes a lot of both emotional and mental energy. I appreciate you saying that um, uh, for this audience. Um, I want to ask you how this has manifest manifested itself for you when it comes to working in the Canadian sports media. I'll sort of use one example. And I, I couldn't imagine sort of what this would be like because it's really, you know, sort of it's twofold or a double-edged sword. I, I would imagine that a lot of times you are called upon to provide a, uh, you know, black Canadian perspective or a perspective on um, how you're seeing this role, uh, you know, framed. In fact, quite frankly, I'm doing it now. So at the on the one hand, I'm sure that, you know, there's a part of you that's like, I, I appreciate having a platform and a voice. On the other hand... You don't want to, you, you don't want your role to be the designated person who always comes on to explain um, the uh, minority community on a you know uh, at, a, at a mostly white employed place. So I wonder for you, and again, this whole conversation is very sort of macro and free form. How, how, how have you seen this manifest itself when it comes to specifically the industry that you work in in Canada? Yeah, so here is the, the dilemma that black Canadians in media face. First, to get a job, right? You look at any resume, it asks you for a couple years of relevant work experience and oftentimes, you know, a reference within the company. Well, you end up hiring from the exact same pool of people. If we all acknowledge that media in Canada, as it is, um, you know, in the United States, but it's much worse actually in Canada, it has not enough representation. Well, how do you get that representation if you're just circular? hiring the same people. So so once you, you get in the door, you know it's more difficult. You know that you have to try and lift uh, other people like you up. And one of the ways that you can get opportunities 
is using something that is intrinsic to you, using something that is a blind spot for others, and that's having conversations about race, covering issues about race. That's a way that you can maybe get a head start because you've already started from so far behind. Having said that, at some point, you become pigeonholed. At some point, being black becomes your beat, and you're not just seen as a journalist or a broadcaster. You're seen as the black journalist, the black broadcaster. And so as much as you want to tell those stories because, one, they're important, and two, times you don't trust anybody else to tell them properly and fairly, it is a lot of work to tell them. And you know that often if you don't pitch those stories, Nobody else will. Nobody else will be equipped to, or nobody else will even think to. And for me in my career, that that nexus point came with Colin Kaepernick in 2016, 2017, when it seemed like he was always in the news as that story was fluid. At some point, I was tired of writing Colin Kaepernick stories. I was tired of putting something out there, knowing that as soon as it went live on the Internet, I was going to be flooded with hate on Twitter. That's like not something you want to wake up and go to work and do. But I also knew that it was an important story and that if it's not told, well, who wins? And so I think that's the dilemma for black Canadian media, myself included, is you want to use that as a benefit because you know that the cards and the deck is stacked against you. People often say, oh, you're playing the race card. No, my friend, the race card was dealt to me. I don't control the hand. And so I understand that it is a responsibility and an obligation for me to tell these stories for my community, but that doesn't mean it's not work at times, and it doesn't mean it's not difficult and uncomfortable. And so I continue to tell them because I don't really know another way that I can help not that smart, not that rich, not that compelling. This is really the only way that I can help. Um, but sometimes when I really reflect on what it's doing to myself, what it's doing to my family, I'm not sure if I'm helping myself or I'm hurting myself. It's a lot to process because uh, as someone who's really never had to sort of deal with any of that kind of, uh, you know, internal decision-making, um, again, I appreciate you sort of, saying that sort of so people can understand uh you um you wrote a piece that's on sportsnet that um that's really well done i, I would just sort of for people depending on when you hear this just head to sportsnet and and uh you could probably get donovan's archives and you'll see the piece but um you wrote that it's uh, this is open quote here you've been a, it's been a particularly difficult month to be black in north america and nhl or Vander kane doesn't want doesn't want the only people discussing that to be people who look like him. He wants white people to step speak out too. a sentiment. I understand. Uh, I wonder if you can sort of take us into this story, Donovan, because one of the, um, when we get into a sports context, one of the most notable things I think that's happened in the last, you know, 72, 96, uh, you know, uh, week basically that's gone by is we have seen a lot of athletes speak out, and not just athletes of color, who have been speaking out for, quite frankly, for a long, long time, but we have seen white athletes who, in some cases, basically acknowledge the privilege that they've had, that they have never really encountered this, and that they want to stand for their black teammates, and they, they, they want to try to do something when it comes to systemic racism. I can't say it's going to last, but 
if nothing else, at least in the near term, Donovan, it's been a it's been a pretty interesting thing to watch. It has, and I'm interested to see where it goes. Right when this tragedy no longer is a trend, I'm interested to see all of these white athletes who all of a sudden found a conscience, what they're going to do with their now acknowledged privilege and power. Because I did not hear any of the white hockey players that are speaking now speak up for Akeem Alou just a week ago when he beautifully wrote about his ugly experience in the game of hockey on the Players' Tribune. I, I did not hear these owners and executives and GMs talking with so much conviction when Colin Kaepernick was taking a knee. Even if we remove ourselves from Colin Kaepernick, who now is basically a political football, I didn't hear anyone defending the right to peacefully protest when the NFL was putting in rules so that you couldn't peacefully protest, that you had to stay in the locker room and basically be silenced. So I'm just really curious that all of these people who had their comms teams put together messages to go out, all of these people who put Blackout Tuesday on their IG and used the hashtag, I want to not just see them on June 2nd. I want to see them on July 2nd. I don't just want to see them in 2020. I want to see them in 2025. I want to see them keep that same energy. And it's not as if white athletes and, and, and the leaders of leagues and organizations are people who always stick to sports. Last I checked, Salute to Service is an initiative that the NFL does for the, the military, which is very important. Every single league has initiatives that they do to support cancer. And so if this is a disease and a problem that you really want to eradicate, would you not treat it the same way? Especially when your league was built, in most cases, off the backs of black players? Your stadiums were funded, whether it's taxpaying dollars or actual tickets, out of the hands of money by black customers. And so that is a privilege that gives you power, and you have power and an obligation to do something about it if you act like you really, really care. I don't understand why this is the one subject where we expect the victim to have all of the solutions. Think about that. If we were we're trying to cure cancer and we had a conversation on TV, would we just have cancer victims on a panel? If we were talking about sexual assault, would we only have sexual assault survivors on a panel? We'd have politicians, we'd have researchers, we'd have doctors, we'd have people who are leaders in business and industry. So we need to treat this problem the same way. So if we can get together and have marathons and runs to cure cancer, I'm sorry, I missed the race to erase racism. I would be there, excited to run, and a lot of other people would. So don't just tell me that you care. Show me that you care. And again, teams, organizations, they know they have power because they are already doing very similar things. So, you know, what do you expect in terms of this relationship between sports and the conversation on race? Um, 
you know, obviously people on this podcast know that away from Sportsnet, I cover the uh, U.S. media, sports media for The Athletic. And one of the things, Donovan, that, you know, stands out and will always stand out is how these networks treated Colin Kaepernick when sort of the rubber met the road. And what they really tried to do as best as possible was sort of to avoid the situation. They addressed it because they had to address it. It was in front of them. It's really no deep examination. And then those who really um, those who were really prominent uh, we saw what happened at their organizations. ESPN basically <laughs> sort of dictated a charter that they did not want their people to be speaking out on on social issues on their Twitter feeds. Uh, you know, that be, 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 and and those that did would face severe consequences. So I don't want what well, while I well I actually believe in some sense that sports does have the power to bring communities together, and it's one of the few places where you do see people of. Um, of, of different races sort of uh, pushing towards the same goal with their fandom. It's not some kind of panacea by any means. And generally speaking, the important issues in sports are not necessarily addressed on sports broadcasts. So what do you expect from sort of our industry at large? Do you think we will play a leadership position, given that we have so many athletes of color who are going to be front and center here, and that we have uh, athletes and teams that represent mega brands that millions and millions of people care about, or does, and again, I'm speaking more for the States. Does it become just another like sort of footnote that, Hey, you know, six months ago, so-and-so athlete was pretty prominent in the George Floyd protests. And, you know, now it's third and 10 and the Cowboys are driving. Well, I know in sports, we are playing in the sandbox of journalism, right? We, we are doing something that is fun and people often say, well, it's supposed to be a distraction. I'm coming to sports for a distraction from all of the things that ill society. Well, I mean, I think we need less of a distraction right now, to be honest. I think we need a little bit more focus. But specifically in covering these issues, if you are a journalist, you have a responsibility. You, you took an oath to, to be truthful. The journalist creed, last I checked, says, I believe the suppression of the news for any consideration other than the welfare of society is indefensible. So when you're suppressing voices like Jamel Hill, when you're suppressing what actually is happening on how you report about Colin Kaepernick, and you're allowing the real message to be lost, and it's all of a sudden a conversation about the flag and whether or not it's being disrespectful to it or the military, and it's not about the things that are happening in his community every single day, when you allow the entire message and spirit of what he was doing to be co-opted in an election cycle, that's dangerous. That's harmful. Like any journalist would tell you that you have a duty of care to bring the story to light and show all angles in their immediate truth. And I think we can all honestly say that did not happen with the Colin Kaepernick situation. It remains to continue to not happen with the Colin Kaepernick situation. So for any media company that wants to act like they care about these issues, and during Black History Month they want to put together these vignettes of the way that sports has been able to change how society has seen black people in the United States and Canada and around the world, and they want to play these beautiful speeches and show this vintage video of Jackie Robinson 
Well, no, you have to do the work right now. You have to acknowledge that, that for many, Colin Kaepernick is a Muhammad Ali-like figure right now, and you have to cover him appropriately. And again, if you're going to have the montage going to break of Nelson Mandela saying sport has the power to change the world, it has the power to inspire, it has the power to unite people in a way that little else does, then you have to be part of the uniting. Because otherwise, you're just appropriating the fact that black people have struggled through sport before, but you're not helping them in their struggle right now. Donovan, is there anything else that you would like to add regarding um, how you've been viewing the last couple of weeks, your own experiences here? Um, I'll leave this last part up to you and for you to go anywhere you'd like. Yeah, I mean, one, I just want to say that black people, like any group of society, are not a monolith. They don't think alike on all issues. They don't vote the same. They, they don't believe that the right course of action is always the same. But one thing they do have in common, and it's something that they have in common with other minorities and, and people of color, is for whatever reason, when things like this happen, there are many white people both in, in media but in our general population, who feel threatened by the conversation, who lash out and say, I don't see race. I don't believe this is an issue. Race is a man-made concept, and you are making it worse by having this conversation. That's fine you don't see race. Congratulations. That in itself is a privilege. That's a privilege that you have, that you don't see race, that you're not impacted by it, that you're not worried about it. But you have the opportunity to use that privilege so that maybe one day my children's children's children could have the audacity to say something like, I don't see race. Because that's not my reality. My reality is I'm going to have to decide when I'm going to sit my child down and rob him of his innocence and tell him, you know what, Martin Luther King's dream, that you are going to be judged by the content of your character and not the color of your skin, we're not there yet. We're not at that dream yet. In fact, many people who look like you are living a nightmare. So I'm going to have to arm you and protect you and let you know that you're going to have to work twice as hard to get half as much. And even when you do that, you still might be judged by the worst of people who look like you and not the best. And so this is what you're going to have to do when you interact with police. This is what you're going to have to do when you interact in the corporate world. This is what you're going to have to do when you interact at school. I'm going to have to have that conversation. And there's going to be another conversation that is going to happen. It's inevitable. It happened to me. It happened to my father. It happened to his father. At some point, my son is going to come to me and tell me about his experience where he was racially profiled. And, Richard, I tell you, I'm going to bawl like a baby when that happens. So if you don't have to think about that, if you don't have to have those conversations with your child, congratulations. God bless you. I'm happy that you don't. But I would also love for you, I'd be happy for you to help me not have to have those conversations. Race Israel. Donovan Bennett is a host, podcaster, and writer for Sportsnet. They, uh, he works with me in Toronto, Canada. Absolutely one of the best colleagues that I have. Donovan, uh, thank you very much for uh, joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast. And uh, I will be seeing you down the road quite soon. 
And seriously, man, thank you for this. Thank you for this. And thank you for having this conversation even before it was getting link clicks. I appreciate that. Okay, back in the studio. My thanks to Lisa Wilson, Michael Eaves, Raina Cash, and Donovan Bennett for um, what I hope for people listening was informative and educational and transparent and honest. Um, I tried my best to just listen more than anything else, and I really appreciate them coming on and talking about their reflections on this um, you know, for pretty incredibly talented and passionate and, uh, and honest brokers. So I'm really just thankful that they actually came on my podcast and were willing to talk about what is an incredibly important topic. Um, if you go back in our archives, um, I hope you'll see things that are of interest to you. The podcast episode before this featured uh, John O'Rand for some um, general sports media talk and the athletics Katie Strang on her investigative work involving uh, sexual abuse allegations in youth hockey. Prior to that, Booker McFarland on his Monday Night Football experience and NASCAR producer Barry Landis, who's the point person for Fox's NASCAR coverage, which has been excellent. Before that, Tom Berducci on the new normal of covering baseball. Before that, Bob Costas um, for his... uh, work with uh, um, on concussion education in sports um, as well as um, sort of where he stands on his career at the moment and again I would you know if you like this kind of stuff just head back to the archives and uh, and hopefully you'll find some stuff that interests you the way this podcast continues is if you uh, give it five stars and, and write a nice review you know my bosses see that and obviously downloads are important but your feedback is just as important um, can't thank uh, Patrick Antonetti and Sean Cherry enough. There's a lot of uh, work that went into editing this podcast, so thank you. And thanks to Cadence 13 for their continued support. Chris Corcoran, Spencer Brown, John McDermott. This is Richard Deitch after a, uh, it's been a pretty, uh, pretty hard and awful week in the United States of America. I think all of us hope for better days, but um, it's not going to be easy to get there. And so I wish you and uh, yours safety and health, and we'll see you again on the Sports Media Podcast.